welcome, uh, Lola. Uh, this is uh, the first episode of Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. And we have a sort, sort of an intersection of small worlds, I think. Uh, I first saw you in a newsletter that came out from Amherst College. And I'm a class of 93. What, what class are you, Lola? Seven. Oh, seven. Okay. Yeah. So there's a big distance between our experiences there, but Amherst is one of those places where I think it's mantra is illuminate the world. And when I read about you in the newsletter, I was like, you go girl. She is out there putting these scrumptious looking noodles out into the world. And I haven't found that many people from Amherst doing food. And then I found out you were in the region and not just that, but you happen to be related to um, a woman I very much admire and respect who um, was really heading up the Jefferson County Farmer's Market, Amanda Milholland. And I happen to be sitting on the board of directors of that farmer's market. It focuses on both Port Townsend and Chimicum in Washington. So, you know, tell, tell everybody about yourself and how you sort of found your way into food. Uh, sure. Yeah. So nice to talk with you, Rufina. And um, I was born and raised in Portland and my mom worked for a regional natural foods grocery store when I was growing up. So my first memories are hiding behind the refrigerated case and poking my hand into the yogurt when people were reaching for things or <laughs> like um, trying to convince the woman in the wellness department to let me eat vitamin gummy bears for candy. So I was, you know, I think of myself as a little bit raised in a grocery store. And then when I was pretty young, my mom transitioned to be on the side of the of production. So she worked for a company called Organic Valley. It's the largest farmer-owned organic co-op. And they're very small when she started and she was, you know, part of them growing enormously. And it's a really beautiful story because it is a farmer-owned group where the money goes back to the farmers and they are committed 100% organic. So, you know, well, can I ask you a question about that. Is that Organic Valley that kind of originated in Wisconsin? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, familiar with that. I studied yeah. their model a long time ago. Right. Mom was hired to help them find farmers in the Northwest because whenever they open a new region, they're working with farmers in that region. Just makes sense if you're going to truck something heavy like milk, a liquid, to serve the customers in that community. So her first farmers she worked with were in Trout Lake, Washington. Okay. And I remember as a little girl going up to Trout Lake and, you know, they would call it the real organic valley because at some point all of Trout Lake... <laughs> So I have been in this industry peripherally since I was very young. And then on the other side, I have my dad, who is sort of an autodidact historian, like really into Northwest cultural figures, people who are forgotten. And he is, his brother is Doug Milholland of Port Townsend. So many, many um, special times spent in Port Townsend. So I think I have both of this sort of like nerdy, like bookish, historical side, and also like an orientation around what does a new vision for business look like that puts the environment and people at the center. And so when I went to Amherst, I had, I had been studying Japanese since I was five. My parents put me in a bilingual school. And so I decided to stay with Japanese. It seemed like if I spent 13 years on it, I might as well keep going. And I and that's a point of interest, right? Because do, would you like to share a little bit about your your own background? Uh, you know, because the, 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 I find that interesting. Yeah, yeah. So my mom is Filipina American. She calls she and her siblings call themselves Polipinos. They're Polipino, <laughs> but deep connection to the Philippines. I spent time with my grandpa there, and then my dad is born and raised in Oregon, and so I have pretty real, firm connections to the Philippines. 
And if you know the history of the Philippines and Japan, it's really a horrible one. And so I always thought that was interesting that my parents decided to put me into a school when I was five, focused on Japanese language. But I think both my parents had an interest in having a child who could see that the world didn't have a single culture and that, you know, language could be malleable. And um, at the time, this school was just opening. So I was in the second class. And I think some people would be afraid of that. I think my parents' personalities is like, we want our child to be the guinea pig in this situation. you know, from a very, yeah, from a very young age, uh, I also had my Filipino grandpa live with us when I was growing up every spring. So from a very young age, I felt a lot of connection to various places in East Asia and Southeast Asia um, and got to go to Japan many times growing up with my school and also on different exchange programs and have always felt like not a like unadulterated love of Japan or of course the United States but something a little bit more inquisitive, like, wow, what an interesting place. What a complex history, especially recent history. And, and as someone who knows the history of Japan and the Philippines, like, wow, there's so much there, so much um, complexity. And um, so I feel like people can't quite understand that. I think uh, so like you, you have to have some connection to understand that complexity, like my own grandfather and grandmother were taken prisoner by the Japanese in the wartime. And my grandmother was pregnant at the time. They had 11 children. All the children went to live with the grandmother in the forests. Um, And they were only able to escape because my grandfather could write the calligraphy, which could be read both by, because he was a Chinese orphan. He was a Chinese Filipino and they arranged to have an exchange because his wife was pregnant for nine men to replace him. And this is right before the war ended. So they freed my my grandfather and grandmother and the nine men replaced him. I mean, this is the complexity of Japanese. Like there was hatred in the Philippines. Oh my goodness. My mom, tell your relatives that you speak Japanese. Absolutely, yeah. mom. Don't say one word about it. Wow. Yeah. So uh, it's, we hear yeah. that too. You know, we both have this Filipino heritage, which um, in addition to the Amherst connection. Right. Right. So I think I'm grateful that my parents, like, you know, emphasized complexity, but also they kind of let me go on my own journey in my relationship with Japan. There is a lot of things about Japanese culture that are deeply fascinating. People come at it from lots of different ways, of course. Um, But I think in the context of food, there is such a sense of seasonality Mm -hmm. and also um, intention and Mm -hmm. and a deep connection to like what has come before and past. You and I could probably speak all day long about (laughs) different waves of migration and how the Filipinos coming at one point meant one thing, Japanese have had a completely different relationship with America. And that's why I think whenever we get into like blanket statements about Asian Americans or East Asians, we like miss the mark because yeah. it is really different if you yeah. go place to place, region to region. Absolutely. Um, and so I have a deep fascination with Japanese food culture, but I am more and more opening myself up to a fascination with Filipino food culture and then how those like diasporic communities come into my community in the Northwest. So, you know, I'm getting more involved with Filipino Americans here and also the Japanese American community here, which is very distinct from the Japanese community. Um, And and there's so many touch points though, I think in terms of the appreciation of the fineness of quality. 
Um, You know, I think there's that intersection there. I'm I'm really excited to hear you talk about these things. And at some point, maybe we'll talk about the concept of Kaizen later, (laughs) you know, because that's something I've been really interested in too. Wow. Okay. So, so what a rich like upbringing in food and, and the context of the Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. and the, the marriage of history with um, your interest and curiosity about food. So tell me a little bit more because because you had this full broad telescoping out in terms of how you were raised into food. And then you had a, a total telescoping in to narrow it down to like the one food product. What is that like as an entrepreneur, um, yeah. as a woman owned business, all of this? Well, you know, I, when I graduated, I wanted to be involved in food advocacy and my focus was on school lunch. So I really wanted to work at a nonprofit that was trying to improve the quality of school lunch and create those intersections with regional. And at the time, I think organic was more taboo, but in the long game, I thought I want there to be like an ecological component to this. Um, and so I came to work in Portland at a nonprofit called EcoTrust that was right in the moment that I came spearheading a farm to school. There was a farm to school national movement and they were spearheading the state version of it. And I, I think maybe I thought I was going to be tangentially involved in politics. I don't really know. Oh. Um, but I, you know, jumped into that and got the chance to watch legislation get written and coalitions formed and kind of the process of how do you compromise, but also hold a vision. It was really informative. And at the same time, in all my spare time, I was just like eating, cooking, making noodles and Japanese food and you know, like being being a person who would, I would try to travel to Japan whenever I could. I would make friends who could teach me things like how to make miso. Like I would, at the time there was a magazine at the nonprofit and I would write. And one of my coworkers joked that I always snuck Japan in to everyone. (laughs) Excellent. I don't know how you do it. It's like a mystery, but how you do. (laughs) It was always there as an undercurrent. And a friend's mom, Japanese American woman named Valerie Otani, knew that I was into making noodles, trying to do it. And she suggested I take a workshop. And I think workshop now we think like a Zoom class or something, but this was like $1,000 at a very specific industry focused organization called the Wheat Marketing Center. And the attendees had come from all over the world. And they they were trying to teach them about how to make ramen, but like instant ramen. Oh. Um, and it was sort of a ploy to both deepen their knowledge, but also sell them on American wheat. Mm. And so it's kind of funny because my focus was mm. on local food systems. And this was like a truly about export. Right. But in that class, not only did I get to make instant ramen from scratch, which just completely blew my mind. That blows my mind right now. I'm like thinking, how do I get into that class? <laughs> it was wild. But also I learned about how much we export. We think about Japan volcanic series of islands. There's not a lot of arable land. Right. They make a lot of products that we consume. Right. So what are they buying? Many things, but food. They're buying a lot of food. And we are growing a lot of wheat in the West. Mm -hmm. Portland is the largest wheat and barley export gate in the nation. And most of what we sell, 90% is going to Japan. Wow. That's amazing. Can you, I can't can't even fathom that. And I think we talked at one point about, um, you know, my similar interest in the curiosity of how we export wheat to Italy, um, where I spent a fair amount of time studying with different chefs um, and how we were sending our flour to be ground to the double O level for pasta making and then having it 
shipped back to us and paying the import tax on it coming from Italy. Right. Boomerang. In our in this case, I was calling them boomerang noodles because okay. you like throw the wheat onto one side of the ocean and then yeah. they process it and then they ship it back. And so we're buying a product that I think we think of it as completely imported, but it's made with wheat grown right around us. Right. Uh, a huge source of buckwheat for Japanese soba making is grown in Eastern Washington. They don't have, to your point, the um, facilities to make it the way that the Japanese market wants it. And then we don't have a local audience for that high quality of soba noodle. So at the time, like a lot of light bulbs. Build off. that audience, right? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of light bulbs went off for me, which was like, wow, this is cool. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm like not always into demonizing things. I'm like into understanding them. And mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, this is fascinating. Yeah. And also it points out like, wow, our whole system is built for export. Yeah. We have these huge, we used to have infrastructure for regional grain and we really don't. And then I thought, wow, but it's coming. Like there's a local food movement and the, and the infrastructure is coming. Yeah. We could remove the part where it flies across the ocean and back. Right. And we could make a noodle with ingredients from this place. But I want a noodle that fits my expectations of a really good noodle. Like, I don't want a crummy noodle. I want a great noodle. You know? Right, right. right. And isn't it sad? Not everybody knows what a great noodle tastes like until you've eaten one that's been made from scratch. Yeah. Your mind gets blown. You're like, I didn't know I was missing this in my life. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I, well, so initially I wrote an article about it for the magazine that I, for the nonprofit where I worked. And I wrote at the end, like, somebody should do this, you know? But my mom, who's a business person, was like, it's going to be you. You're going to be. And, you know, I'm a kind of person who has lots of ideas. I'm like, I want to do this. I want to do that. And my mom would always say, because she has the acumen, the best idea you have is the noodles. Because you make noodles, you sell noodles. You make noodles, you sell noodles. You don't have to have a huge cash investment up front for something like some special miso or some amazing soy sauce or, you know, some of the other products that I was interested in. She was like, you know, if you're going to start with something, you also know you're getting to know these green farmers. That's the one. That's the idea. So I had... Wow, way to go. Yeah, yeah. I had guiding me. And also emphasizing to me, because she comes from a background where they like really grew that company. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want you to make something that's super, super boutique that like five people get to eat. Like I want you to make a product that is aligned with your values, but that is affordable and that you can make accessible to more people. So, so beautiful. I think we'll get to things about school lunch later, but that was always in my mind, which is mm-hmm. that, you know, I wanted to make a product that is, you know, I spend a lot for my flour, but it's still a very simple product. It's mm-hmm. flour and water. And we sell it for a certain price at the grocery store. And I think of the way that we built our business as a giant version of sliding scale, mm-hmm. where if you're at the grocery store, you spend top dollar for it. And some people may not be able to do that. But we also provide it at our farmer's market booths for free or sliding scale. We offer it in other settings for much less. And so we're trying to make it accessible in different ways to lots of different people. Um, That's amazing. You've created this incredible virtuous cycle of connection, like from from your company to all these different like grocery stores and then the farmers market. Um, and you touch you touch on the lives of the farmers, the grain farmers, and the people to whom you're kind of providing that sliding scale as well as that's that's really incredible and and so incredibly thoughtful um it took a while i think at first i just knew what i wanted it to be but i didn't understand how it would be that and i think just like 
having my mom, who's much more business savvy than me, helping remind me like it it does have to work as a business at the end of the day, Lola. Like you can't just go around (laughs) giving away noodles to everybody and like, you know, making cool zines. Like you actually have to run a business. And also you can hold on to what's true to you and just keep pursuing it. And I feel like, you know, we started in 2016. I I can't believe that because I still feel like a baby. I'm like, such a little tiny baby company. We very small in a relative sense, but we keep growing. And as we grow, we keep becoming more of what I hope we will become. And that I think is an endless process. And in the organic certification, they talk about continuous improvement, Mm -hmm. full improvement. And I think about that for us, which is that we're never where we want to be, but that's a beautiful thing instead of like an overwhelming thing. Um, And recently it has started to feel like, oh, we're starting to figure out that piece about sliding scale. Okay. It's starting to become part of the whole instead of a minute part of. Fantastic. That's amazing. That's really, really amazing to hear. And um, do you for yourself as an entrepreneur have like a, a think tank of, of people? It's similarly situated in um, food businesses with that level of intention. Uh, yes. I mean, I have a lot of mentors. I, I am very grateful for the number of people who are at in different places in their lives who are businesses a little bit bigger than me, businesses a lot bigger than me, people who are retired, who can kind of give support. Um, and then Portland is a really special place to have a food business. And I think the farmer's market itself, I mean, you understand you're a board member, but it's truly magical place of connection. And the vendors who are part of the market are in community with one another and they are there to support each other. And there are a lot of other businesses that I have met at the farmer's market and continue to do things with to support in that going both directions. Um, so I do feel like I'm part of a community. And we come with different priorities, but I think at the end of the day, that's good because we are real people who have, we bring our own lives and our own selves. We're not like automatons and we in that way are expressing ourselves through our businesses. Right, right, absolutely. I think that's that's really a an important point that self expression through the business. Um, I I imagine that so many people enter it that way, and the people who really succeed are the ones who put the discipline behind it in the way that you have with finding the right resources to kind of support the growth and the scale. Yeah. Um, so tell me, when it came down to the noodles, it was it was more a business idea that you know caught fire mainly because there are other things that you love. But when, when was that first noodle experience where you're like, oh, I love this noodle. I have to make this noodle. Yeah. Well, you know, I was making them by myself with my like Italian pasta maker and feeling like these are not that great. They really are not <laughs> okay. I mean, they're, I'm into them, but they're not like as good as they could be. And then um, met somebody who had a noodle factory, a Vietnamese immigrant who had the machinery that I would need to use and had a little tiny... A noodle machine that's like two feet wide by like four feet high. Okay. It's called a Tokyo Menki. It's like a little tiny mixer. And he was like, come in anytime you want and practice making noodles. Wow. Mixer. Yeah. The generosity is incredible. Yeah. And um, so I started buying flour from all of the regional farmers that I knew of and making noodles every week. I would go in every week for a year and make noodles. And I will say like, I made some noodles because one of the ingredients in ramen is called kansui. It's an alkaline salt. Um, okay. It's ramen that really bouncy kind mm-hmm. of quality. 
because it's alkaline, in, there's a lot to that piece, but I'll just say that if you use too much, it is not good. And yeah. so there was a moment. Yeah, where, I can imagine the texture becomes yeah. not light. Okay. There was a moment when I was bringing <laughs> my noodles and my brother was like, I'm never going to eat one of your noodles again. Like I, I had like taken it too far on the alkaline scale. He was like, I'm literally never going to have But, <laughs> but I, you know, sometimes you have to take something too far to know like the point of no return, okay. right? You I, have to know the point of no return there. Uh, but I, I actually think that the very first time I made it with that mixer, and this goes against ideas about like totally handmade, but that first time I made it with that mixer and I was able to keep the moisture level a little bit lower mm. and I tasted this fresh noodle that had been made in this particular way, that was probably the moment where I was like, oh, damn, like, <laughs> good. like this okay. is delicious. Oh, good. It took me a long time to actually finalize our first noodle, but I knew from that moment it was going to be worth it. Like I would figure it out because it was just so good. So I think that was like, that was the moment for me. Oh, that's a good story. <laughs> and your brother's reaction. What does your brother say now? I mean, my brother loves our noodles and yeah. I am cautious. Like, so I live with my partner, Corey and um, my brother and a roommate named Christopher uh-huh. and we have a communal house and we all cook together. And I'm like careful not to cook noodles too, too much because I mean, I eat them at work and it just seems like I don't want to over, I don't, I want them to love the noodles. <laughs> right. Right. Do you want to retire of the taste? <laughs> Excellent. That's so good. And what recipe, like if you had to recommend, because you have a number of recipes on your website um, and they look fabulous, but if, if someone doesn't really know that much yet, because I do think, you know, I'm just noticing in this time of the pandemic, so many people are sitting at home and they're, they're exploring new cuisines in, in ways. And I just think, well, if you had to give them one recipe off the website, which one would it be for a starter, a person? Definitely one. And my friend Sakiko taught it to me, um, but it's a Japanese classic. In Japan, the dish is called hiyashi chuka, which uh, it's a cold ramen dish you eat in the summer. Oh. Um, and I think we know variations of it as like a sesame noodle. Oh, um, yeah. So a classic that people really love, the version that she makes is with miso. And I kind of have a add miso whenever you can philosophy on life. But it's very simple. You use toasted tahini, a little bit of toasted sesame oil, miso. So you know right off the bat, this is going to be delicious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, some garlic, some ginger. It's very simple. You mix together a sauce and then you cook the noodles and you chill them briefly. And I think in that context, you can really, really experience the bouncy quality of the noodles. Like the texture comes all the way through. Okay. And then it's a template for any kind of vegetable you want to use. So in Japan, hiyashi chuka would often have like sliced, like a julienne vegetables, like matchstick carrots and cucumbers and crunchy summer things, sliced tomatoes. But I do it with whatever I have that I can get in season. So roasted delicata or Brussels sprouts, you know, wedges of winter squash or sauteed leeks. Like it really is um, easy to make something delicious. Yeah. And so, farm and, friendly, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, and so if you looked up Sakiko's miso sesame noodles on our website, that would be the Okay. That sounds good. And how do we get them? How do we get you to have your product at the Jefferson County Farmers Market? Yeah. Well, you know, I think farmers markets do belong to their local communities. Mm. So, but you know, Danny Milholland, Amanda's brother, is all about events, and we do some really fun, silly events at Umi. We do something called the Noodle Luge, 
She's inspired by a Japanese summer thing called Nagashi Soulmen, where they make a water slide for these slippery little soulmen noodles. Wow. We make a bamboo water slide for ramen noodles. It's very anti-COVID. It's like, <laughs> I, I thought maybe after COVID, this is never going to happen again. But and I always talk about like one summer day, we're going to come to the Jefferson Farmer's Market with our wa- noodle water slide nice. and we'll set it up. Right. Um, so we'll have like a brief pop-up. Nice. But it's hard to get noodles to your area for me because I work with pretty small distributors and mm-hmm. the distribution is the true uh, invisible layer of the yeah. food system. Or you have to have a maker. Because I remember I interviewed Annie's um, from the original Annie of Annie's Naturals Dressings. And she started in Vermont and she ran that whole upper north uh, part of the country. And then she had to get a new maker in the south and in the the west. Yeah, that makes sense, right? A little bit like that organic valley piece. Mm -hmm. Why would you not make it in a regional way? Yeah. Wow. Well, well, I'm still going to hope <laughs> for one day. And when we're less locked down, I'll travel to Seattle and get myself some of those noodles and make them. And then I'll video it. We really want so, them. Cool. That's so great. So I have this question, which is maybe seems very far out there. And it's, it's of personal interest to me because I keep thinking about how school systems some of them just sort of did away with their home economics programs. And I remember as a child being really envious because my parents stuck me in Catholic school, which, which was a blessing for me, but I didn't get home economics in Catholic school. I don't know why I didn't think it was important, but my neighbor was always coming home from home economics class with something tasty, sometimes cake, sometimes, you know, all kinds of things. And I was thinking, what if they brought that back? And what if, what if people could, you know, children could begin to experience other cultures firsthand for themselves through the cuisine. Yeah. And, and what stories could we tell that could go with the recipes that we shared that could help them feel part of it, part of that new culture. And I wondered like, if you had to offer something into this curriculum, what recipe would you offer uh, for children? uh, And, and why? You know, it's uh, like a very timely question because um, we make a whole grain yakisoba noodle and we make it according to um, federal standards for school lunch. And we make it because the Japanese American community in Portland at the same school I went to growing up was doing monthly cultural lunches Mm -hmm. and they would make lunch for the school. The participation on those days would be huge. And they would teach kids about like, what is this dish in Japan? Um, how is it eaten? And the most popular lunch they made would be yakisoba. Like yakisoba is very cool because it's a noodle dish. So kids love it, but it's filled with vegetables, like, you know, 50% vegetables. Um, but those vegetables are just like totally surreptitiously tangled with right. noodles. And so they decided they were just buying yakisoba noodles that didn't meet federal standards. And you can do that. You just don't get reimbursed. And they were only doing it once every year. Wow. But the nutrition director, Whitney Ellersick of Portland Public Schools, who's very awesome, was like, this, we should do this district-wide. Yeah. Because if it's this popular here, why wouldn't kids love it? All the schools. And so she and I met at an event and she was like, would you make this noodle for school lunch? Amazing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot think of a higher honor. I would wow. love to do that. And we are set up to make a yakisoba noodle and it's very similar to a ramen noodle just happens to be cooked and then chilled before it's sold. So you just reheat it. Okay. And there's a lot of parts of this story, but we 
brought that to school lunch and at Richmond, they incorporated it in an educational piece. I think bringing that edu- educational piece to all schools is the next step. Yeah. Um, and I have a woman named Betty Azumi, who's really amazing. She's a professor at PSU and she's helping me think about that. I oh. would love to help you think about that. Yeah. I, I've oh. spent some time with those, yeah. the federal regulations on food because I worked with a, a nonprofit named Nourish out of uh, Wisconsin that has been mm-hmm. building snacks according to the standards to do after school snacks. And I was helping them scale their recipes. So that yeah, I was going to, um, yeah. So I was going to say, which I think is a good continuation on that, that yeah. we started selling that noodle after it was so popular in schools, we started selling it at our farmer's market booth. And then I have relationships with some nonprofits. One of them in Portland is called Growing Gardens. They're actually around the state, but it's a really beautiful nonprofit, uh, meaningful. And they work on gardens and prisons. They work on helping uh, empower people to have gardens in their homes. Awesome. And also they do after school, school gardens. They run school gardens and after school programs. And so we just partnered last week to send home kits to kids since they can't do as much in-person stuff. And those kits included our noodles, our, we've been doing a yakisoba sauce, and then a ton of vegetables nice. with a recipe so that a kid could cook their own after school snack. That's awesome. That's yeah. what totally I love about comforting. it. Is that, yeah. It's like these kids are cooking kale and, you know, peas and these other things, like basic skills around sauteing green onions that like, once you have that under your belt, you can apply it so much. And the idea, yeah. Why wouldn't I put vegetables in my after school snack? So I just loved being part of that. We're going to continue doing that, sending home um, little build your own after-school snack, cook your own after-school snack, um, snack kits. So just start. I, I am so happy. I wasn't expecting to have this conversation with you, but how lovely. I'm really excited for you, Lola. It's really fantastic. Uh, so, so yakisoba it is. Uh, yeah. I, I think that sort of, you know, opening a child's worldview up like that is a gift at such a young age especially in areas like I live in a, a relatively rural area up here on the Olympic Peninsula. And the, the demographics, you know, are, are pretty homogenous for the most part. So there might be like 9% of the population in, in this county is of color, you know, by, by self, you know, identification. Yeah. And I think I've been seeing some really interesting things happening on social media lately where, you know, before, I feel like there was less sensitivity potentially around who makes what, right? Like, like everybody kind of cooked what they wanted to cook, what they love to cook. I mean, I'm Filipino, I'm Filipino, Chinese and Spanish American. And gosh, I can, I can't, I can cook paella, right? I I can cook chicken adobo and I can cook some things from the Filipino tradition. But what I really love, what I spent a lot of my time cooking was Italian food, right? And there's a region in Italy called Rufina. They don't say my name the same way. Like when I went there and I studied with these Italian chefs, they're like, your name is not Rufina, it's Rufina. 
Oh. You know, there's, there's a roof in all the, the saint. Your oh. name is the feminine version of that. And there's, um, when I saw my name on a poster for that was on wine barrels, I was like, oh my gosh, my name actually appears somewhere in Italy. Like, you know, those carousels with those little dry, uh, license plates never had Rafina on it, but um, <laughs> Italy, they might. So, so I feel like when I look at children and, and, and that like it's an easy thing for people to say everybody should cook everything right so that they know and understand but somehow when we get into adulthood you know we're starting to see like people wanting to promote foods from different cultures and maybe doing it a little bit awkwardly like the other day there was a social media post from Martha Stewart it looks to me like the person who created the recipe is multiracial um, and potentially of Asian descent, but I don't know for sure. And she, she gave credit, right? You know, she put the little at sign in that person's name. Um, in the first flash, it's like, this is a braised chicken dish and it's got, you know, this and this and this. And and there were like 14 Filipinos like, hey, I think that's Filipino. Yay, that's chicken adobo. Could you just say it? Could you just, you know, tell us that? Like, because once you start saying something's braised, you sort of make it sound like it's something more than it is. And it, I guess if you if you clicked on the picture, then it would go to the the particular link where it says it's Filipino inspired. And I just think we've lost something in translation where we don't tell people like this is the celebrated culture from which this came. Like I used to teach croissants. Um, I used to teach a French cuisine class, right? And that might look weird to have a Filipino, Chinese, Spanish person teaching French class. But I would always walk through the, the legacy of the chefs who really took their stand about the quality of cooking and the, the precision of technique. And we made our students learn about the history and the place and the regions. And then we would cook from the regions. And when it came to croissants, even though I would teach croissants, I would have them watch Julia Child and Esther McManus having this beautiful conversation about croissants and making them together because that's part of the beauty of food, right? That's the food love. Like here you get to make it with somebody you adore and whatnot. And I, I feel like, you know, we've seen just a few more people like the, a woman posted on um, the New York Times like cooking group, which is just a lovely community of people um, who are talking and sharing food all the time through posts. And she said she was a little disappointed by New York Times post about kanji. And the kanji, like the picture of the bowl was not traditional kanji because in, in China and probably the other places that make kanji in Asia, the, the meat is a garnish. The poultry is a garnish. So you, it's not this concept like you have a lot of these meal in a bowl things happening now, right? Where a, a slab of meat or a big hunk of chicken is sliced up like this and laid on top of the bowl. And so that's what this picture looked like. So anybody who's eaten kanji in, in their lives is like, you can sniff that. That's not authentic. So I imagine she saw the picture and she's like, who wrote this recipe? And she found out it was someone who happened to be a white male. She said, you know, it would have been nice if the New York Times had like had somebody you know, of origin to, to walk somebody through this because the comments on the kanji recipe were, wow, this is really bad. It's, it was a dull recipe. It wasn't a good recipe. And there are fabulous recipes for kanji, you know, in particular, I remember having almost an existential experience, having seafood kanji at a restaurant my aunt took me to in LA. And I was like, I didn't know kanji could be this good, (laughs) you know? And, and I just wonder, what's your take on that? What's your take on 
you know, this new confusion about how to present ethnic foods that, you know, aren't from your country of origin. I mean, I have a lot of kind of interlapping thoughts about this. And I think the first one is structural. And I think it gets to your point, which is that a lot of these different media outlets are really like blundering through this. And I think a huge reason is because of who's in power at those places and who works at those places. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they wouldn't have made that error if the editor was more sensitive to that. And maybe that editor wouldn't have assigned that person if they had a different staff. So, and I think that that writ large, right? Like um, who owns businesses? And I think about that with myself. You know, my mom is a Filipina, but I identify as white. And here I am making a Japanese food, very complex. You know, I, I am deeply connected to my community here, but what does that mean? And I think it's a really important thing to interrogate. Uh, and so, you know, around this, I think, okay, well, maybe my role isn't just to succeed as a business. Maybe my role is to help others succeed as a business who are not like me, to help share the things that I learn and to help like lift other people up who are doing really cool things and use, you know, a platform is power. Use that as a, as a, as a tool. So there's that piece of it, which I think is we have to question the structure of these places and we have to ask them yeah. and ask ourselves to do better, you know, and it's always an evolution. We're always trying. It's kind of what I was talking about earlier, which is like, there's, we, we may not be there today, but we keep walking towards it and we should be playing a really long game and we should be playing a real structural game. So there's a piece of it, I think. Um, I just want to share with you that I, so I don't know what happened to me, but I I just posted on Martha's page. I said, you know, it'd be nice if you would think about succession planning and maybe boosting up some of your, you know, people who are writing these recipes. Um, No response. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not the place for it, but I think you're right. I think there is a big structural issue there. I do like- It's really nice to hear you talking about I do also think to your point, like, so I just learned this term- food grammar. So, right. They, they didn't know the food grammar of kanji and they blundered. Right. And, but the truth is like, what they should do is have someone say, this is traditionally how to make kanji, but it doesn't mean it's wrong for somebody to make it differently. And why would you start with the thing that's change when you could start with the thing that is the beginning and then express, you know what, you know, we, we are in a different culture and we are making this change. And I think, um, the idea of, I actually, obviously you and I can talk about this a long time, but I have a couple thoughts that interlap with that. One is who is an authority, right? We need to stop assuming that any particular person is an authority and instead describe recipes as coming from a personal place. And I mean that across the board because food is constantly changing and everybody's bringing their own story into how they make something. And if you were to travel around Thailand, you might eat a lot of different versions of kanji. You know, maybe somebody feels it really has to have that fried delicious donut in it and somebody doesn't. And why do I make it the way I make it? Tell that as an honest story through yourself. And you are not the person who invented it. And you must always pay credence to somebody before. And on our website, you know, we almost only use recipes that people share with us. And I always try to tell their story. And it means that I'll have four recipes for yakisoba, vegetable yakisoba. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah. Because people make it different ways for lots of different reasons and they like it different ways. Yeah. I think it's like this idea of the definitive anything is, is just terrible. (laughs) I do too. And in my own personal philosophy that I've, I've written about, but not shared yet, um, is that there's this riff that happens, right? It's, it's a lot like, um, 
playing music on some level and and sometimes like playing jazz like this improvisational piece yeah right where you take something which is a thing of beauty and it has some structure to it from the country of origin and then you're like it's so beautiful and I also love this and I'm going to add it to this um and you know I think I think that's I think that's totally like a, a way of entering food. Um, and it's not for everybody, right? Some, some people are much more traditionalists and purists about certain things, but there's space for all of it. And oh I, I think that's the interesting thing. And I had a, an exchange on social media following that post about kanji. And this person who said, I'm Italian, you know, and I don't have a problem with people doing all of this. And, and I said, it's not that I have a problem with people doing it. I think if, if you, you know, have that reverence for the celebration of the culture of origin on some of not hiding it or pretending like you, you made it up, those types of things seem sort of, I don't know, misaligned to me when one is a big media outlet or a big brand name where you're pushing it out into society. Because then at that point, it sounds like you're kind of co-opting culture, right? And that, that's dancing a different dance. And I said to this person, I said, you know, with this kanji recipe, you know, when you look at it, I think it could be fun. I think it'd be tasty. Um, you might have to add more things based on the comments, but it would be a lot like um, saying to somebody, hey, this is this is marinara and then on, on homemade pasta and then serving them ketchup on top of box pasta. That's what it's like. <laughs> and if you can understand that piece, then maybe you can understand why this person sort of felt disappointed, yeah. right? Well, so. I mean- it's, it, yeah, it's so interesting. I was going to say to you about your croissant making that I think that often we think that, not we, but this is a media thing, which is like white people get to make anything, but other people are supposed to only make what their cuisine is. And that is also completely bananas. Right. Um, people should make the thing that calls to them and they should look to many, many authorities yes. um, and they should interrogate what it is that they like and why they like it. And and in it, they shouldn't make themselves the person who knows best. They should try to be empowering other people to have their own journey with it. And so I think it's completely legitimate for somebody to say, hey, this is how I make croissants. Let me show you. This is one way to do it. And here are some other people talking about it. And you should make it also in a way that's real for you. You yeah. know? Yeah, um, I believe that. And and that's not to put down ketchup on pasta either. Like if it warms your belly, great. You know, like th- these are the things that are coming up. Like I, I was participating in a workshop. And I was so surprised this woman who was a recipe writer for a large online magazine was assigned to write about um, a recipe using ketchup and using it sort of in a, uh, in an Asian recipe. And she was highly uncomfortable with it and, and, and a little bit judgmental about the use of ketchup. And I was like, you know, in terms of Asian American cooking in the U S ketchup has become an ingredient that people use with soy, you know, to make very tasty dishes. So let's not knock any of it. You know, it can all come into the stream of consciousness and still be tasty. Uh, Another thing that this sparked in me that I want to talk about a little bit, um, I think it's fascinating, is that when I was studying Filipino food history, um, Filipino cuisine is influenced by the indigenous people and the ingredients available, but also the Chinese who are coming into trade also the Spanish who were colonizers. Mm-hmm. And then this piece really blew my mind. The Spanish were did this sort of 
intense, and I would describe it as very malicious thing, where they took Filipinos to Mexico and Mexicans to the Philippines, oh. used the indigenous populations of each to lord over the other. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the, there was a, a trade between those two places because mm-hmm. Spanish colonized both. And so there is Mexican cooking in the Philippines and there is Filipino cooking in Mexico. And this is from a long time ago. And I think, so champurrado is the one that I think of where it's in Mexico, it's made with corn. In the Philippines, it's made with rice, but it's, you can tell that it is from a similar origin. And I think it gets at this question, which is what is authentic, right? Yeah. And it's a question that shouldn't be taken for granted. It should be asked, but it doesn't mean that there is one answer and that we have to hold to that answer. There's like multitudes in in these things. And then of course, the Americans come and colonize the Philippines and they bring a food ethos that also, a mil, really military foods mm-hmm. that once again shifts the cuisine there. And so, you know, really interesting to think about what is Filipino food right. here and who gets to be an authority on it. Right. And I think it goes back to my thought, which is that like, maybe people bring different perspectives and there are some people and when they share their perspective, it opens something up for you, but there's not a single authority on these yeah. things. I do. Um, so, and why would Martha Stewart not call it adobo? <laughs> yeah, you know? I don't know. Why wouldn't she put it right there on the front page if the attempt was really <laughs> to share, right? To share something. And it's okay. It's like, hey, this is Filipino, but it's totally influenced by Spain. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. that is part of the beauty of, you know, when I was a kid in Portland, there wasn't a lot of interesting food. And I'm so grateful that that has changed. It's a mm. net positive you know? Yeah. yeah. That's a net positive, which you're adding to. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm really excited to see your company grow and expand and have a bigger footprint. You're doing so much good in the world. And I think, you know, as, as far as the honor of having you on the first episode, yeah, exemplify food love. So thank yeah. you. Thank oh, you. So no, much. Thank you.